Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 102, Chemical Philosophy, in which we take a look at what philosophical ideas are behind chemistry itself. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. This episode is a bit different from others in this series because we aren't discussing science proper, but how to think about science. We normally consider science to be observing what's going on setting slightly unusual conditions in an experiment, and then seeing what happens. But now, let's talk philosophy. I am not a philosopher. I had exactly one class, an introduction to philosophy class, in my first year at university, and realized philosophy is not for me. But maybe it's for you. Or maybe not. Either way, How chemists think about the world is important, and that's where we go in this episode. You may have heard me mention offhandedly a few philosophical questions, like, can one molecule have a boiling point? So, in this episode, I will avoid most philosophical jargon to help you, and me, understand what's the debate here. Originally science, since the Renaissance, was called natural philosophy and was considered a branch of philosophy, coined from the Greek philosophia, love of wisdom. As natural philosophy became science, from Latin scientia, knowledge or expertise, by the early 19th century, and split from philosophy, scientists, chemists included, generally went their own way, preferring to discuss actual observations rather than arguing over possibilities. There were a few scientist philosophers, however, such as physicists Pierre Duhem and Ernst Mach, like the Mach number for speed. The first return of philosophy to science happened in the early to mid-20th century as quantum theory showed the true weirdness of the microscopic world, and as relativity showed more weirdness of the macroscopic world. But this debate seethed in physics mostly, and left chemistry largely immune, dealing with everyday chemical reactions of everyday materials. But in the 1980s through 1990s, our current point in our chemical history, chemistry began to come under the philosophical microscope again, and this is where we pick up the story. The first question is, what really defines the ultimate particles or units of chemistry? Is it a molecule? If so, how does a metal fit into that definition? Metals don't form molecules. We already know that metals are essentially infinite arrays of atoms. Most organic compounds do form molecules, but not metals or also their salts. Anything from iron sulfate to table salt 
also form extended arrays of their ions. So what's the ultimate unit of a metal or its salt? Likewise, what of the noble gases, such as helium, argon, or neon? By themselves, they don't form molecules, but remain single atoms in gaseous form. We might argue about water itself. Single water molecules as a liquid form clusters held together by hydrogen bonds. Is a water cluster the ultimate unit? The cluster is really what defines water's properties, not a single molecule. By that rule, what about DNA? We know DNA is a pair of strands of chains of bases with sugar and phosphate groups. The pair is held together by hydrogen bonds. Is a single strand of DNA the ultimate unit, or the pair? Or liquid crystals. Is a single molecule the ultimate unit, or a set of layers of molecules in which we see the liquid crystalline properties emerge? As you have begun to see in our episodes, chemistry of the later 20th century became more and more preoccupied with supramolecular structures, that is, large collections of molecules that create interesting chemical conditions, whether it is information transfer in cells, or liquid crystal layers, or junctions of different semiconductors to make electronic components. This is related to the chemical versus physical molecule controversy eating at chemists in the early and mid-1800s, and the confusion of molecular and formula weights unresolved until the Karlsruhe Conference in 1860. The definition of molecule, or smallest unit, also is clearly flexible in chemistry. Sometimes we mean cluster, sometimes we mean molecule, sometimes we mean atom, and sometimes, well, we're not sure. So, rather, let's just get away from ultimate particles and slide into what maybe sounds like a medieval way of looking at chemicals, that is, the substance itself, regardless of its particulate units, as the basic object. So then, we would say that pure iron, pure water, pure oxygen, and pure nylon have whatever properties we deem the ultimate essentials of a chemical. Sounds reasonable. Iron can't be copper or brass. But wait, how do we get pure iron? Can we even get pure iron? Chemists will tell you there is no such thing as an absolutely pure substance. There are always, always, always some contaminant atoms or molecules in any chemical. When chemists buy starting materials from a chemical company, they get jars of 99% or 99.9% pure chemicals. They cannot buy 100% pure chemicals. Such chemicals do not exist. The more purification steps you run to get purer and purer iron, or any other chemical, the closer you get to that ideally pure substance. At some point, any chemist will just stop purifying the material and say, that's good enough for this experiment or process. Even with silicon, perhaps the purest substance one can make, because then you introduce deliberate contaminants, dopants, 
to get the properties you want, it's never absolutely pure. It might be six nines pure, as in 99.9999% pure, but never completely pure. Did you, however, hear the word ideal I just used? That brings us back to the ancient Greek and medieval alchemists' ideas of ideal elements, which are really properties like hot and wet, or cold and dry, or ideal wateriness, or ideal metallicity. It's this kind of discussion that gives chemists conniptions. A further complication is that you can't place a neat correspondence between, say, a chemical as a substance with properties X, Y, and Z, and that chemical as a collection of certain molecules. That classification breaks down when, say, you talk about non-stoichiometric compounds, those compounds with a flexible or variable composition of different elements. It also breaks down when you talk of certain geological minerals with a variable set of ions or spatial arrangements of those ions in the crystal structure. Now that we've argued our way out of atoms, molecules, water, or iron, let's take the discussion even further. What does chemistry really study? Does chemistry study molecular structures? Does chemistry study chemical reactions? You might call this a debate between philosophy of substances and the philosophy of transformations. If we leave any and all substances out lying on the ground, they will eventually change into something else. A piece of iron will rust. The oxygen in the air combines with the iron to make the rust. Water will evaporate or combine with other minerals. Even uranium will, over millions of years, decompose into lead via radioactive decay. Nothing remains the same indefinitely. You might even regard any specific material as a chemical intermediate, even if we can trap it in a jar and isolate it. It's even going to react, however slowly, with the jar itself, which is a question of chemical kinetics. Well then, let's say chemistry is the science of characterization of substances. So you have to measure these properties of the substance, knowing how pure it is, and part of those chemical properties is what reactions it undergoes. So then you can talk of a substance philosopher as a someone who cares most about how a substance changes in a reaction, while a process philosopher cares more about the reactions things undergo. There is even a third choice here, where you can combine both views into a kind of network of events and substances as the basic study of chemistry. With the network view, the reactions define the chemical, and the chemicals define the reactions. What about the distinction between natural chemicals and synthetic chemicals? Chemists usually will say that a natural chemical is one you can isolate from some natural product or resource. Aha! Now you have to introduce an artificial method, purification, to isolate a natural chemical. What about elements? The only way to talk about natural elements is to include a synthetic purification method. And many, many biological chemicals we can pull out of living creatures 
are only isolatable with very technical laboratory techniques. To get a clean surface of a metal or semiconductor, you have to place it into an ultra-high vacuum chamber and bake it, perhaps blast it with ions as well. That's not a natural process. So obtaining a pure natural substance is quite debatable. Chemistry itself is unlike other sciences. Besides the scientific goals of describing chemicals, explaining their reactions and properties, and predicting chemical events, there are other chemical activities that don't exist in any other sciences. Specifically, chemistry is like biology and geology in that it classifies materials, say, as metals or gases or organic acids. Chemistry doesn't work like the other sciences in that it synthesizes new materials, with maybe a hundred million chemicals now known. Here is a major philosophical problem in chemistry. What is a chemical bond? Of course, we know from history that Gilbert Lewis defined a bond as a pair of electrons shared or donated between two atoms. Then there are several objections. First is the quantum mechanical view, which is that electrons in molecules are stretched out over the entire molecule in specific three-dimensional shapes called orbitals, which only denote probability of finding those electrons. There is nothing inherent of pairs of electrons. It's all about what probability volumes and energy levels are most stable when you bring nuclei near each other. The bondists might answer yes, but there is always some kind of directionality between nuclei and some extra electron density where the bond is. But the whole argument about bonds is weakened. Quantum mechanics of electron levels is a process of the entire molecule and whatever is most stable. So you might even say that there are no specific bonds here, but the process itself of bonding is real, for it holds molecules together. There is the patternist approach. Vanessa Seifert at the University of Bristol in England argues that, quote, bonds could be understood as patterns of interactions among subatomic particles, unquote. That is, it's more efficient to talk about bonds in the state of a molecule than describing every single interaction between every single subatomic particle in a molecule. There is the expansivist view of quantum mechanics. That is, molecules never ever exist in isolation. They are always somehow interacting with the rest of the universe. So a fully quantum mechanical approach to describing chemistry needs to include the entirety of all. To me, that may be technically true and idealized, but practically not workable. Science describes parts of things to help us understand the whole. Often in, say, the American Chemical Society's weekly news magazine, Chemical and Engineering News, I see an article or letter to the editor saying how some new data means rewriting 
what a hydrogen bond really is, or complaining how hydrogen bonds don't encompass all of what we can experimentally detect as hydrogen bondedness. As the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says, quote, once one moves beyond introductory textbooks to advanced treatments, one finds many theoretical approaches to bonding, but few, if any, definitions or direct characterizations of the bond itself. While some might attribute this lack of definitional clarity to common background knowledge shared among all chemists, we believe this reflects uncertainty or maybe even ambivalence about the status of the chemical bond itself. On the other hand, most chemists, though they certainly aren't philosophers, probably would argue for the practical, operational nature of a bond. With millions of chemicals known, and if there isn't such a thing as a bond, how could we characterize them all successfully? We use the idea of a chemical bond because it works. That was the view of Nobel Prize-winning chemist Linus Pauling, who literally wrote the book on chemical bonds, namely, The Nature of the Chemical Bond. What about molecular structure itself, a key component of chemistry since the mid-1800s? We know that molecules aren't frozen in place. They are constantly vibrating, more so at higher temperatures, with some bonds, if you agree they exist, extending and others contracting. Nuclei in a molecule are always shifting position. Therefore, a water molecule's structure, often defined by a bond angle of 104.5 degrees from hydrogen to oxygen to hydrogen, is strictly not true. That bond angle is always changing, and perhaps 104.5 degrees merely denotes a long-term average. If you say, okay, the 104.5 degree angle works at absolute zero temperature, where a molecule has no motion, well, there is a problem here too, for nothing can reach absolute zero temperature. Quantum mechanics says there must always be molecular motion, otherwise Heisenberg's uncertainty principle fails, and we would know both the position and momentum of a particle. We call this residual, ever-present molecular motion zero-point energy. Even absolute zero temperature is an unreachable ideal. We can go back to water, as Vanessa Seifert has done in a March 2023 article in the Royal Society of Chemistry's monthly magazine, Chemistry World. Suppose we call the substance made of H2O molecules water. We say that specific microscopic particles make up a substance, and this is called in philosophy of science microstructural essentialism. The essence of a substance is in its microstructure. But as Seifert remarks, what about the microstructure of water when it's a gas versus a liquid versus a solid? What happens when we add impurities and those impurities, say ionic salts, dissociate in water and now you get a different equilibrium between H2O 
and its dissociative products H+, and OH-. Because of some of these difficulties in describing the microstructure in all cases of water, you may have to add macroscopic properties to your description, which negates your microstructural essence. Finally, let's talk about the philosophy of a chemical reaction mechanism, where mechanisms only became plausible in the 1930s. You might take one large view, that a mechanism shows a kind of movie of a reaction, where along the way we note the positions of all the nuclei and electrons involved. Or you might take a narrow view, in which we delineate specific intermediate molecules generated, and see how their parts interact with each other to generate the final molecular product in our reaction. Again, each is idealized. We'd like to know positions of all particles in a reaction, but that's usually impractical. So we boil things down to what we, as chemists, consider to be the most relevant things occurring along the way, which is also idealized because we know that whole molecules are moving and twisting, not just specific double bonds or groups of atoms. There are many of these sorts of arguments to make about chemistry and its assumptions and definitions, whether it be molecules, properties, molecular structures, bonds, chemical formulas we put on paper to represent molecules and their reactions, and other generalizations chemists use as a kind of shorthand to describe whatever is going on. In our next episode, we switch to the rise of green chemistry in the 1990s as a kind of ecological answer for chemists themselves. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 